0: broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta. It's time for Health Connect South Radio. Now here's your host, CW Hall. Good morning, everyone. It is CW, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio show, episode 68, I believe. It's getting up there, but this is the first one with a view. <laughs> I like I like your cool new studio here. Yes, we are streaming from a top 1 Atlanta Plaza off East Paces Ferry overlooking this city from the 21st floor in the offices of top right partners. If you have not done so already, make sure you get registered for the upcoming health connect South event on September 21st. And for our loyal listeners, be sure to use the coupon code radio X to get a discount. So if you are in the next few weeks and use the radio X coupon, you can get a really low rate for, you can take advantage of the early bird special and your radio coupon. And make sure that you invite some of your colleagues from the healthcare space. There's always connections to be made with potential partners and collaborators that would move your uh, uh, initiative in healthcare forward, whether that's research that you're doing or developing some new healthcare technology, uh, whatever it is that you're working on that would help advance the health of our uh, collective population around our southeastern region, we would love to help facilitate that. So we want to make sure that everybody joins us at the Georgia Aquarium coming up here. It's, it's September twenty four It's over a month. That's right. And check the website because there's more and more speakers as they're confirmed. There's lots of people that said they're going to do it. And as they, they post the pictures on the website, once they're confirmed, but as keep going back to healthconnectsouth.com and checking to see who's going to be there on September 21st, Georgia Aquarium and this year we're going to be focused on addressing the top 10 disease states affecting the uh, the globe as defined by the World Health Organization and we'll have experts who are uh, developing medicines and technologies and approaches To dealing with those disease states, trying to reduce the rate of their occurrence and the extent to which they affect our population. So should be some great conversations going on there. And and not too long ago, I began to become more educated around precision medicine, particularly around pharmacogenomic testing. And over the course of the last few months, I've had an opportunity to interview some experts from the genetic testing space, including pharmacogenomic testing. Uh, These studies are able to, with a minimally or non-invasive test, tell the physician the genetic components either of a tumor, for example, that maybe uh, it's a a kidney tumor that uh, has some genetic similarities to a lung tumor. They might actually be able to utilize medications that are effective on those lung tumors to deal with that uh, emerging renal tumor, for example. And then when you look at pharmacogenetic testing, That is where they are able to determine how your body metabolizes particular types of medications such that uh, if you look at Plavix, for example, 2.5% of the population of the United States don't activate that medication. Uh, You take it and it just passes through your body. That would help the physician to know that they're prescribing a medication for you that's actually going to do what they want it to do. Or on the other end of things, maybe your body doesn't process a medication very well and you'd be prone to have a toxicity event particularly worrisome for patients in behavioral medicine, some also in cardiology medications that can cause some pretty significant toxicity problems for the patient if the dosage isn't just right or if their body can't quite handle it. So I've had the opportunity to meet some high-level experts who are really leading the way with regards to developing the evidence around some of this type of uh, data and also, uh, another health executive who is put in charge of precision medicine initiatives for a very large system, the Catholic Health Initiatives, Damon Hostin is a uh, director over the precision medicine efforts of Catholic Health Initiatives. It's 103 hospital system around the country that's also in some relationships with other systems that actually gives them some measure of influence in uh, well over that 103 hospitals such that uh, they are early adopters to technology and philosophies around precision medicine to help accelerate the rate at which their patients get better. And I also met Dr. Dan Roden. He is on the steering committee for the Clinical Pharmacogenomic Implementation Consortium or CPIC. And that organization is one that is curating data from around the country, from the various studies that are looking at pharmacogenomic testing. He actually has the Dan Roden pharmacogenomic lab in the Vanderbilt campus, uh, particularly studying cardio, uh, cardiology medicines. He's a practicing cardiologist and one of the faculty there at Vanderbilt. Uh, clearly, two people who know a lot about precision medicine, coming at it from a couple of different directions. Uh, Dr. Roden being on the academic edge, uh, where they are contributing some of that early evidence around this type of testing. And then we've got an early adopting organization in Catholic Health Initiatives and in Damon being able to give their perspectives on precision medicine, why it's important, why go through the effort of trying to implement such initiatives. So I caught up with them a couple of days ago wanted to let you uh, check them out. So uh, without further ado, get to Dr. Dan Roden of Vanderbilt and Damon Hostin of Catholic Health Health Initiatives. Check it out. Thanks for joining us. It's CW, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Recently, I had the pleasure of meeting some experts in the field of precision medicine, began to learn a little bit in particular around pharmacogenomic testing, which was kind of my early exposure to goings on within the field of precision medicine and how it's being applied and i had the good fortune of meeting a couple of folks who are certainly experts subject of precision medicine and and pharmacogenomic testing and 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 that sort of data uh, coming into play with regards to planning of care that we're going to deliver to a patient medicines that we would uh, potentially choose or not choose allowing the providers of care to be able to get quite specific in some cases, uh, therefore allowing us to get to a positive outcome more quickly or at least at a minimum avoid some negative outcomes that can occur if my body doesn't react well to a medication that is prescribed. I'm joined on the phone right now by Dr. Dan Roden. He is a physician and faculty At Vanderbilt University in fact uh, after his medical college and internship he went to Vanderbilt to train in clinical pharmacology and cardiology and has been a faculty member ever since his initial career focus that he has maintained ever since his uh, early studies was looking at clinical genetic cellular and molecular basis of arrhythmia susceptibility and variability responses to arrhythmia therapies and then over the last 10 years He has led Vanderbilt's broader efforts in pharmacogenomics discovery and implementation. He's a principal investigator for Vanderbilt Sites of the National Institute of Health Pharmacogenomics Research Network. And in fact, we were just chatting before we went on the air. Uh, They've got a lot of work. They've just received a large grant there at Vanderbilt around this initiative, and and it's got him uh, extremely busy. So I'm very pleased to have you making a few minutes available for us. Uh, Dr. Roden, thanks for, for sitting in. My pleasure. And not too long ago, I also had the opportunity to meet Damon Hostin. He is the Vice President of Precision Medicine at Catholic Health Initiatives out in Denver, Colorado. Prior to joining Catholic Health Initiatives, he was a clinical business lead for complete genomics and strategic diagnostics. Earlier, Mr. Hostin served as a Vice President of Scientific Operations for GenViz Labs, a genetic diagnostic company purchased by Pfizer in 2008. At Actinium Pharmaceuticals, Hostin managed alliances and licensing for the development of oncology therapeutic candidates. And earlier, he served as team leader of sequencing at Celera Genomics, where he co published on the human and Drosophila genome papers in science, as well as contributing to the launch of the commercial genomic database. So clearly, I have the good fortune of bringing together a couple of well-educated experts on this subject. So, Damon, thanks for sitting in as well.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: One of the things I wanted to focus on today when I had your time is, is just to take a look, kind of a broader look at precision medicine and what it means to your organizations. Clearly, Dr. Roden Vanderbilt is certainly an early adopter and is committed to precision medicine given your involvement um, with uh, the clinical pharmacogenomic implementation consortium or cpic as it's known clearly the university and you yourself as a as a physician are, are committed to advancing both the science that's supporting this and and uncovering its possibilities but just applying the the data that can be gained through this process of of uh, test collection and, and information to be able to improve patient outcomes so how long has this been an initiative for for at Vanderbilt to to come down this road because clearly you're you're one of the earlier adopters around the country that's going down this path
2: right so um we uh, I, I think i date our you know formal uh, investment in the area that we call we used to call personalized medicine and now call precision medicine to about the mid2000s when we had a strategic planning exercise and identified that as one of the pillars of where we wanted to uh, go and, and that strategic planning exercises are important for organizations like ours as well as uh, practice organizations uh, like, like in Denver to just decide you know where the, where the world is going, where we want to go and, and therefore where we want to invest, you know time people, resources, money, space, and all those other things. Uh, those, those kinds of decisions don't come out of the blue. They come from an institutional culture and, and an institutional history. So, for example, we had uh, a longstanding investment in clinical pharmacology where I where I trained, and, and clinical pharmacology over the last 30 or 40 years has been a lot about the understanding of genetic variation as a determinant of variable drug responses. So the idea of pharmacogenetics uh, is something that has grown up out of the clinical pharmacology discipline. The other key investment that Vanderbilt had made What now seems like many, many years ago, uh, and it's actually about 25 or more years old as an investment in biomedical informatics. So we currently have by far the largest department of biomedical informatics in the country. So when you get uh, biomedical informatics, the the science of managing large data sets in many, many ways, uh, to be present at a medical campus that's interested in pharmacogenomics, it's sort of a natural marriage. We were we developed an electronic medical record, and then it became clear that you could use the electronic medical record as not only a tool to take care of individual patients, but to aggregate data. And many, many systems aggregate data for outcomes, for costs. We've we've also used ours to look at scientific discovery, particularly as coupled to a DNA bank. So I would put our our sort of, when we put our more than our baby toe in the water, but our sort of <laughs> foot up to the ankle in the water, uh, around 10 years ago, and we've made uh, you know a couple of large investments, one in, in a biobank, one in a, a preemptive pharmacogenetic variant project that where we embed pharmacogenetic variants in people's electronic records before the information is used. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second. And and then uh, using those kinds of resources, we've managed to sort of create a presence for ourselves in the, in the personalized medicine space as that has grown up and as interest has grown up around the country so we are early adopters and early adopters suffer from the fact that they are uh blazing a path for others and sometimes the path is not the perfect path from point a to point b but if you don't know what the path is then uh, you have to blaze something and i think on the on the whole we've 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 had far more successes than uh i wouldn't call them failures but detours uh and uh i think we've learned a lot along the way and and I will say that one of the reasons people are interested in this area is because we we have a burgeoning a requirement, in fact, to use electronic records across the country, and, and people are realizing uh, through work that we've done as part of the EMERGE network uh, with many others that electronic records can be used as resources for uh, discovery and for delivering genomic information. So I think that's where I think that I think I've said enough, and I'll shut up now. <laughs>
0: Damon, talk a little bit about Catholic Health Initiatives because, like what Dr. Roden is describing at Vanderbilt, where they committed to the notion of precision medicine, going so far as to develop uh, an electronic medical record around that that pulls in some of that precision data, allowing the point of care to actually be able to use it. Similarly, at Catholic Health Initiatives, they're forward thinking enough to think we're going to commit. S- serious effort to this and to the point where they're bringing in someone such as yourself with a long background, pharmacogenomic testing, as well as genetic testing around oncology. Uh, what what helped them in that evolution to, to get to that point where they're going to put somebody in place that's going to help guide their system, which from what I remember about CHI, 108 hospitals or so in the system, not to mention some other relationships out there with other organizations that Actually, expand that beyond just those 108 hospitals around the country. So, certainly, committing resources to, to really, in my opinion, the benefit of many, many patients out there across the country, based on the size of the organization. What, what, are, from the perspective of why do that? Put somebody in place that's specifically over precision medicine, uh, like like what you're charged with.
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, see, we have been able to see. And of course, behind every trailblazer is someone that's fast following. But that's not completely a fair answer either, because we are as Catholic Health Initiatives, we are not academics. We're not necessarily applying for grants to study and, and have discoveries. Rather, our job in community healthcare is to provide the most efficient health care and best outcomes in our health care that we can at scale. And you hinted at that scale. So we're in 19 states, and we're the top provider in a handful of those states. And so when we're trying to do something, it has almost more to do with making sure there's equitable access to advanced technology, regardless of where you are. And so not every patient is fortunate enough to be uh, near a Vanderbilt uh, or a major tertiary center in oncology. And therefore, what we're trying to do is really democratize these benefits as they go through, there's another very selfish reason is that healthcare, care, uh, of course, is changing. And so value-based payments, uh, what we're seeing in at-risk care models and bundles of episodes of care are starting to put a closer lens on how we're spending money and what we're doing. And of course, pharmacy is a very large portion of it. Many years, not many years ago, a handful of years ago, the pre-Affordable Care Act, pharmacy benefit managers were attempting to use some of these technologies to decrease the cost by eliminating waste from the system. And the concept of precision medicine is just that, avoid what won't work and choose what's most probable to work. So today, the science is re-emerging as a tool. Amongst other things, to help control costs and bring about the best possible outcomes in our communities while we're being pressured by these new at-risk payment models. And in some ways, that has reinvigorated the field of genomics or, or uh, applications of genomics within healthcare. And we're seeking to do this and to do it at scale.
0: And when we're talking about precision medicine, clearly pharmacogenomics is very much a part of that, as is genomic testing of different types, whether that is screening for the likelihood of certain diseases in, say, an infant or, um, or even pre-delivery in some cases, or looking at the, the genetic makeup of a tumor to determine whether or not this particular tumor in one part of the body may respond to a therapy that is being utilized for a tumor that predominantly occurs somewhere else. Are there other facets to precision medicine, Damon? I'll start with you, and then we we'll come back to Doctor Roden. Um, are are there are there other facets that fold into that, or or are those really the main components that we're standing on around this personalized medicine approach?
1: Well, I think you did a nice job going through the major, you know, chapter titles of applications of genomics. But at the end of the day, for a provider system. We're looking at things as they're organized within the medical community. And so it's very important to understand what are the patient episodes, what are the risks and potential complications, and who's most at risk in some ways of being poorly managed by prescribed medicines that may have a mismatch to their biology or may be competing against other medications across uh, across their medical journey. There's an 80-20 rule in medicine where the most complex patients uh, tend to be suffering from numerous disorders or on numerous medications, which make the need to understand biology that much more important. And so we are reactive to the evidence. As it's found, we are often beholden to payer models that are not always as current in this world. Right. Um, and with that, I'll certainly then pass to Dr. Roden to, to comment. But again, uh, I think, you know, we're operating in a very similar state as care providers, but in some ways one driving the discovery and utilization, others about building structures uh, to work at scale.
2: Right. And, and the, the I think the two are, uh, I, I used to sort of draw a bright line between the two, but I think that's a very naive approach. And I think that, you know, as, 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 early adopter centers struggle with exactly how to put the infrastructure in place and how to deal with the payers and all those things what they need is evidence for best practices and evidence to support uh, uh, the, the implementation of these things so that the discovery piece and the and the implementation piece uh, are really intimately linked I think the uh, so part of our you know part of our science discovery piece is not only to sort of figure out which which variant, might predict a variable drug response or a disease susceptibility in which patient and what to do about it and whether doing anything about it makes a difference, but also um, what kind of difference it makes, what what physicians and patients want, what payers we're willing to support. And it's sort of an iterative cycle. And as soon as you get the data, that doesn't mean that all practice changes on the spot. It, it takes time for people to sort of think through these decisions. So I think that they're uh, this is this is the epitome of what people have called the learning healthcare system, where you implement something, you see what happens, you tweak it, you see what happens more. But I think that that we're we're in that space right now, so at least we're we're in the cycle
0: been talking with Dr. Dan Roden, cardiologist and faculty at Vanderbilt University, one of the uh, folks there at Vanderbilt that is charged with heading up research around precision medicine, particularly as it relates to pharmacogenomics uh, in cardiology. He heads up uh, a lot of work around uh, some of the medications that patients would treat or take to treat a number of different cardiology problems. And then of course, uh, Damon Hostin, who is heading up the precision medicine division at Catholic Health Initiatives out of Denver, Colorado, and learning some great perspectives, both from, as Dr. Roden talked about, from the uh, academic center where they are doing research and, and blazing the trail, if you will. And then we have on, on this conversation as well, one of those organizations that quickly uh, assimilates data that's coming out of this type of work such that they can, as soon as they're able to you know, curate and, and determine how they can apply it to the benefit of their patients doing so. Uh, such that they have committed resources like leadership, in this case with Damon, to be able to guide the implementation, if you will, of this sort of approach uh, across uh, a large health system. And, and is, it, is it too early, Damon, to be able to see trends? I know that your role with CHI started relatively recently after the first of the year, if I'm not mistaken. With this sort of initiative being put in place and resources such as yourself to be able to begin to kind of pinpoint, here's where we're going to start in in this particular area, is it too soon to be able to begin to see any sort of trend lines emerging as you begin to apply concepts like what we're talking about across your patients?
1: Well, thanks. It is relatively early. I would say one of the first elements is the cooperation that's occurring between service lines within the system, so be it oncology, cardiovascular, orthopedics, others, and precision medicine serving across those verticals to solve the immediate problems they see, generally brought about by new payer models. So CMS has just signaled uh, to prepare for some cardiovascular bundles. We're starting to look at that more closely. We're, of course, reactive to some of the first orthopedic bundles we this is moving in the future. So that's more of an organizational trend that precision medicine, molecular diagnostics are being seen as the tool to help from the physician's alignment side. We're seeing a change where a few years ago, many groups were looking to vertically integrate the capability to do these diagnostics. We're starting to see a bit of a pushback. From purchasing sequencers and doing this on their own, and rather focusing on the macrocosm, how to be able to derive value out of these technologies. And uh, we're seeing that that strategy is is taking hold in some of our major markets.
0: Now, when you stepped into a role uh, in a leadership role around precision medicine for a system like CHI, Damon where do you start? <laughs> you've got you've got uh, <laughs> there's so many things w- around the personalized medicine model that that we know there are patient populations in cardiology, oncology, behavioral medicine, pain, uh, and others even how do you prioritize? this is where we're going to put our focus first.
1: well, we're starting where a lot of work's already been done and that's in tumor profiling. And you could do an entire show, of course, on uh, targeted therapeutics and oncology. It's not only because the access to to these technologies has an absolute chasm in evidence. And so the gray area, Dr. Roden mentioned, is glaring for us in oncology right now because the new and very expensive therapeutics have molecular plausibility to work across indications Mm-hmm. So, a lung cancer drug working in renal cancer, for example. Right. But definitive evidence, which allows for label expansion or payer coverage, is completely lacking. And so, our first project is there, although I expect I'll receive some letters from or emails from uh, cardiovascular as some of the CMS bundles come into play, and we examine what is the best pathway to go forward. Because there are uh, more and more choices being made based upon the profile of the patient in terms of how they're treated.
0: And Dr. Roden, what about on 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 your end of things? Obviously, the 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 perspective is that of the academic institution that is doing some of the study that Damon was alluding to. That we certainly are looking for more of. Uh, from a priority perspective, obviously you studied in cardiology, so it makes absolute sense to start there. But, you know, when it comes down to, uh, again, even even with outside support through grants and, and so forth, you still have finite resources. How do you determine these are some of the areas where we're going to drill down?
2: No, I think that those are, those are really tough questions. Uh, and remember, you know, while we're the academic center and people look at us for discovery, we also are I will say, without fear of much contradiction, you know, the number one referral place, uh, certainly for cardiology and oncology uh, in our region, uh, and our region extends, you know, into neighboring states. So people come here because they not only expect sort of the most cutting-edge therapies to be here, they accept the idea that there's a lot of research going on around here, but they expect also to be uh, exposed to the best of clinical care. So we're you know, we're right in the thick of things. And while, you know, I started life as a cardiologist and, and, and you know, I just, I just came off my two weeks of service as a, an arrhythmia consultant in the hospital. So I still do that. I look at the personalized medicine or precision medicine brief, you know, much, much more broadly than through the lens of a, of a cardiologist who, who, is, who takes care of patients who take uh, clopidogrel or mm-hmm. warfarin. Uh, there are uh, lots of other drugs that have pharmacogenetic stories, some of them more compelling than those, some of them less compelling. And of course, in cancer, uh, you know the situation is very 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 different. I mean I think that that's the air you know we've now come to realize that cancer is, is truly a disease of the genome and and each cancer may have its own drivers that they share with other cancer types but not with uh, with their own cancer types you know some some uh some leukemias share mutations with some melanomas uh but not with other leukemias so uh, we have to even start to think about what words we use to describe these diseases uh because we are now understanding that the molecules are important and that has huge implications for which drugs we select for which patient so i think cancer is in in a in a space by itself and it's constrained by a little bit by evidence, a lot by emotion, and a lot by cost. But I, I think that those are things that the community all has to work through. And the best way to work through it is to is to get you know decent outcomes. And we're embarked on a on what you might call a, you know a grand clinical experiment that really looks like it should work, uh, and in some cases, really looks like it does work.
0: I think it's an interesting challenge. Uh... Hyperbaric medicine is not precision medicine per se, but it is one of the modalities out there that suffers from some of the same challenges that this particular space does in that, yes, just about every paper you read will say more more research is needed on this subject. and, And clearly, we want to have as broad a base of evidence for anything that we're doing for our patient as we can. But there are certain there are times where there are there are difficulties with regards to being able to conduct a study. the, the large randomized double-blind, high quality level one study that so many uh, place so much weight upon at, at, w- at what point uh, Dr. Roden, in your opinion, and then I'll come back to you, Damon, for for your thought on this. I mean, at what point do you go with best evidence? It seems to me that the notion of precision medicine just it, it simply makes sense, as even even outside of having a very large level one study that says yes, that this is absolutely true. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah, well, I'm I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> um, I think I'll I'll just sort of answer with two kinds of almost anecdotes. In the cardiology space, people are very, very sort of used to, not only used to, but sort of expect large randomized clinical trials to tell us, you know, the answer, uh, and I use the word in quotation marks, uh, for how best to take care of populations of patients, and that's what RCTs do. They don't tell you anything about how to take care of an individual patient, except that if you don't know anything else about an individual patient, then whatever works best in a population is what you ought to start with. Now, one of the cases in point is clopidogrel. Um, so the, the, the in vitro evidence is uh, really very compelling that if you absolutely lack 2C19 activity, you will not bioactivate clopidogrel, and you'll not have an antiplatelet effect. That occurs in 2.7% of the Vanderbilt uh, Medical Center population. So, you would have to do genetic testing on 100 people to find two uh, in whom you might use something besides Plavix and Plavix or clopidogrel. Mm-hmm. And and it, and it, and it, in the end, there's a lot of there's such variability in response to that drug anyway that people say, well, it's not worth it now. Or they say I want to see a randomized clinical trial. So how do you design a randomized clinical trial? You take people who have the have the at-risk genotype. So that's 2.7 percent of the population, correct? So that's a very small percentage of the population. And then you, when they are when they're about to start clopidogrel, you randomly assign them to clopidogrel or placebo. That's the randomized clinical trial algorithm. There are many other ways to do it, but that's one way to do it. And when those kinds of trials are proposed,
1: ethicists,
2: regulators like the FDA, and in fact many investigators stand back in horror because they say, now if my mother was being randomized into that trial, I would not allow her to be randomized to placebo. So the fact is we have compelling evidence from other sources that preclude our, our ability to do the randomized clinical trial. People have to have equipoise, and you can't, most people, many people don't have equipoise with regard to this. So the, the fallback position then becomes, well, what about people who have reduced CYP2C19 expression? There are more of those. But the evidence that clopidogrel, that that variant makes a difference in clopidogrel action is correspondingly much weaker. So you could do the study, but you might come out with nothing. And at the end of the day, the problem is the randomized trial is a big population deal, and it doesn't tell you what happens in an individual subject. But if you don't know anything more about the subject, sure, use the population mean. But if you know a little bit more, then the population mean may not be the best for that subject. And and that extends right into cancer. Uh, in cancer, it's all about the individual. And very large, first of all, very large randomized trials just don't happen because the numbers aren't there like they are in cardiovascular medicine for individual tumor types or subtypes. But second, the, you know, it's very, very difficult at this point to sort of take a person who has a BRAF, one, you know, BRAF V600E mutation and with a straight face say, well, you know, I'll randomize you to standard therapy or to... Uh, uh, or, to targeted therapy, and in fact, one of the reasons the early trials with the targeted therapies didn't didn't accrue very well is because people felt very strongly based on anecdotal but very compelling data that it, they had lost equipoise and the new drugs were better than the old. It turns out the new drugs you know are better than the old, but there's a big uh, recurrence rate after the new drugs are have been on board for a while so So we do need to know. But you have to know in the context of ongoing evidence from other from other sources, like the basic science lab, like the clinical pharmacology labs that are telling you what these variants, you know, are expected to do, and you have to you know look at it, look at the evidence pretty dispassionately and, and try to figure out how to get around this. But the large randomized clinical trial just doesn't address the issues that we have in personalized medicine because they are they don't take into account the personalization.
0: Yeah, it's ironic. You have to look at the population and not the individual when you're studying individualized medicine. It's kind of kind of an interesting twist.
2: Well, you, you, <laughs> you, you, it, I mean, one more comment, and that is that that in, in order to develop the data the database to to personalize medicine, take the clavicular example for example, if we're going to treat those two two point seven percent of the population differently, we want to have the ability to study them. And in order to have the ability to study them in, in some way, study their platelet responses, study their genetics, you know, study them on a clinical research center, study them at the bedside, study what happens when they're having coronary angiograms, and afterwards, all those things, you have to be able to identify them well, uh, and you have to be able to report. Now, if, if I took a group of 100 people and found the two people who had variant genetics and reported them, everybody would laugh at me. They'd say, well, two people, that's an anecdote. That's two stories. That's not really data. So I, I have to have you know, maybe 200 people like right. that, in, and in order to find 200 people, I have to have a denominator of 10,000 yes. to get them. So you do have this paradox that in order to do develop the evidence base for personalized medicine, you have to start with very very large numbers because the subsets become quite small. That's why we're going to have a million people in the Precision Medicine Initiative cohort study. That's why the UK
0: Biobank has
2: half a million people. That's why the Million Veterans Program exists. Those are very
1: large numbers because the subsets are going to be very small.
0: Does at some point the lower level study, if you will, the value of say your 10,000 patients, 10,000 case studies, when does that begin to have weight or does it? I'll let Damon
1: answer, I'll, I'll let Damon answer that question or I, or, or I can rant some. Sure. <laughs> well, what we're getting at, I think, is as we start to look at the management of healthcare nationally, even rare events that, Scale are quite expensive, and so I'll go back to the economic ramifications of poorly managed patients. And so if you look at things such as ARHQ and other ways of looking at the overall burden of cost, if these are preventable by integrating data, which is emerging still, but integrating data to avoid harm or uh, to be able to deconvolute complex patients. I think we'll start to see, much like the economics of general heel prick tests for newborns, that the burden of evidence of avoidance of uh, complications may indeed cover these things. Now, in oncology, the chasm of evidence is being approached by new designs in studies. So, things such as match and taper and lung map are completely changing the concept of the randomized double blind study and saying we don't need a negative control to figure out whether a parachute works or not. Exactly. But <laughs> what they're trying to do is move forward with the molecular plausibility and gain that evidence. And in fact, the American Society of Clinical Oncology has been able to design a study in collaboration with the FDA that may actually lead towards label expansion, which is really as a large healthcare provider what we're looking for. Um, but at the same time, I would say very large end. CHI had to create an electronic data warehouse so as to bring data from all of our sites into one collective area. And we learned we have employees that came to us uh, from Kaiser and other groups helping us do this. But we are looking at it from the lens of the sustainability of healthcare. And so the cooperating. Uh, with people like Dr. Rosen, of course, important because it's not our job to figure these pieces out, but we want to be able to collect and support this research, what would bring a finer line and and surety to the decisions that come by using the data.
0: And you're in a place, Damon, where there are two elements— that are potential hurdles. And, and of course, uh, Dr. Roden faces the same thing, um, and in, in a large extent. And that is one, obviously you mentioned earlier, that talked about the fact that, that the payers, Medicare, CMS, um, commercial insurers, they want to see lots of data, of course. And, um, but obviously on, on the physician side of things, the, 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 the providers of care that you have to go to and influence, if you will, through uh, education, through making them aware of what evidence that we do have uh, and the, the benefits of that. It would seem the the one that's in your control to some extent is, is, is on that physician side. So knowing where the, the data pool is, you've talked about a couple of chasms, for example. How do you approach that with your physician's? to help them not necessarily cross their arms and say, I'm just going to sit back and wait until there's more evidence. How do you make them understand maybe this is worth a try because it doesn't sound like we're going to be doing any harm. In fact, we might be avoiding it. It would seem to me that's where the rubber really meets the road. And how do you you address that across the system?
1: We stand at a time right now where there are black boxes on medications For which there is no payer coverage for what that black box indicates for the diagnostic to test for and so there's a disconnect right now and that is incredibly frustrating for the provider and for community providers who have not gone through uh, you know these lessons in genomics over the last decade or so it is incredibly confusing and so the worry about patients receiving bills Mm -hmm. from and the aggressiveness of small companies providing these tests to these physicians creates a climate of confusion. And so with that, that's one of the major reasons why a national initiative to bring a resource, at least in consult, to how to navigate these technologies uh, was so important. So I don't have a great answer for you because it is a mess at the moment. Um, but we're trying to bring order at a large scale, so that there are not missteps because if there are missteps in the emergence or the integration of a new modality in care it's very hard to retrench and try again and so we are being cautious
0: well i i know that i have gotten both of you in very busy times uh, I, I would love to keep you on this conversation for another hour if i could but uh, I promised that I would keep it on the short end. Uh, clearly, we have much to talk about around the notion of precision medicine and, and specific things within it. So I would love to get more of your time as you're able. I know, Dr. Roden, you've got your hands full for the next few weeks, um, but I would love to circle back and, and continue dialogue around these topics so that for those other adopters that are not quite to the point where CHI was, where they said, hey, this is happening, we want to be Right behind those trailblazers and be be the place in the in the community health delivery system that are making this available to our patients as soon as it makes uh, sense for us to be able to do so um, to to be able to share some, some some thought leadership such that we can help some of those that are on the fat part of the curve that that wait until the it's it's Mikey's brothers right you know we're, we're Mikey you're Mikey. And now we're, we're going to hopefully share some information with your brothers so that uh, they can see why did you do this, how are you going about it, and, and maybe be able to hasten the pace at which uh, we're able to make these technologies and this sort of precise approach available to patients to the benefit of their outcomes. And I think to the overall healthcare spend across our system. So if you're if you're willing to do something like that, I would I would love to have that from both of you as you're as you're able and your your schedules permit.
1: Sure, say, I mean, thank, you. I mean, thank you.
0: Obviously, and, uh, I mean, I, uh, go ahead.
2: I, I, you know, it might be worth having you know people who think a lot about healthcare economics to you know, chime in onto this conversation as well. Uh, you know, Damon obviously is a, as you know as a as a key player in. Both, you know, high-end, high-end genome science, and now in in delivery, you know, has a perspective on this, and uh, and there are people who, you know, have, have thought a lot about how to how to do those economic analyses to convince the payers of this sort of and get us out of this very peculiar position of having the FDA put black boxes on things around genetics, and then the payers say that's very interesting, we're not going to pay for it. So, so uh, I, I, you know, I'm uh, I. Uh, I know enough about it to be dangerous, but I don't know. It's not my area of special <laughs> expertise.
0: Well, we can we can certainly get down into some of those subjects where you are, uh, and and similarly, Damon be able to visit with you and colleagues around your early adopting organization and Catholic Health Initiatives to be able to talk about some of these things uh, to the benefit of others who maybe haven't uh, haven't put their toe in the water just yet. Great. If you want more information, obviously you can go to the Vanderbilt website. Are there some particular places on the Catholic Health Initiatives side of things, Damon, that you would recommend that if somebody wanted to learn more about what you're doing there, that they might be able to get more information?
1: Uh, At this time, we are still building the uh, outward presence, so um, stay tuned.
0: Very good. Well, when, when those types of resources are available, we'll certainly be pleased to have a part in making those known. Damon Hostin and Dr. Dan Roden, I really want to say thank you very much. Clearly, you're both very busy people. You have large responsibilities. So to get this time, uh, I'm very pleased. But I feel like at the same time, conversations like this, I think, can help advance this initiative at a faster pace if we get it into the right hand. So thanks again. Thank you very much. All right, gentlemen, we'll catch thank up you. with you down the road. Thanks so much.
2: Okay, thanks
0: a lot. Bye-bye. To the benefit of others who maybe haven't. uh, If you want more information, obviously you can go to the Vanderbilt website. Are there some particular places on the Catholic Health Initiatives side of things, Damon, that you would recommend that if somebody wanted to learn more about what you're doing there, that they might be able to get more information?
1: Uh, At this time, we are still building the uh, outward presence, so stay tuned.
0: Uh, very good. Well, when, when those types of resources are available, we'll certainly be pleased to have a part in making those known. Damon Hostin and Dr. Dan Roden, I really want to say thank you very much. Clearly, you're both very busy people. You have large responsibilities. So to get this time, uh, I'm very pleased. But I feel like at the same time, conversations like this, I think, can help advance uh, this initiative at a faster pace if we get it into the right hand. So thanks again. Thank you very much. All right, gentlemen, we'll catch thank up you. with you down the road. Thanks so much.
1: Okay.
2: Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.
0: If you haven't done so already, make sure you go to the upper left-hand corner of the Health Connect South Radio Show page. You'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Health Connect South Radio Show podcast lives. And subscribe to us. That way each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to listen whenever it is convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. This information just might help somebody that's important to you. So we'll say thanks in advance for the folks that turn around and put this out there on LinkedIn and Facebook and other social media outlets. And all the folks over at Health Connect South, we appreciate your partnership. We look forward to seeing all of our colleagues in the healthcare space joining us at the Georgia Aquarius coming up September 21st. Be sure that you take advantage of the early bird registration and don't forget to use Radio X as your promo code. Jay Schaefer, thanks for stepping in and hanging out with us today in the studio and everybody that made us a part of your day today, we want to say thanks so much. We'll see you all same time, same place next week.